I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Ed Barber and Jay Osgaby of the London-based studio Barber Osgaby. Jay and Ed, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thank you for yeah, asking us. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be chatting. Um, we just had a bit of a chat before we started recording, but I kind of wanted to go back and maybe ask you a little bit about what's been on your mind during this time. I think it's maybe been 12 or 18 months. Uh, mm. And so many of us have obviously spent more time at home or in isolation and, you know, businesses have been slightly disrupted. I just wondered what you've been reflecting on. Well, probably the most single most important thing really for me has been the fact I haven't been able to go to Italy for lunch <laughs> uh, for a year and a half. And um, I, I'm desperate. I've, I mean, Ed and I, we've been in Italy every year since we were in our early 20s. Well, every, every month of every well, year, yeah. pretty much. And uh, we've got serious withdrawals. From- Italy's an essential part of our design process. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've got a plan. Yeah. to get out there so soon. In fact, I'm going next week, but oh. that's really... So fun. that means by the time I get out there, you would have been out there twice. Yes, not fair, is That's it? not good. I'm very um, jealous. Anyway, so what are we reflecting on that, apart from the Italian lunches? Well, travel I mean, generally has been... Right. Yeah, we're typically travelling every week um, internationally um, before COVID. And so, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, definitely every week, sometimes even more than that. But the... I think the thing that we've learned from it is that we won't be doing that again <laughs> afterwards <laughs> because yeah. there's too much, you know, we were clearly traveling too much. And what we've learned is that we can do some of what we do, what we were doing yeah. um, without traveling. I mean, you can't eliminate travel because the projects that we're currently working on have slowed down quite dramatically um, because we haven't been able to get in the same room with the engineers and the owners of the companies. And, you know, those conversations that you sort of, at the beginning, thought you could do on Zoom, you clearly can't. Um, mm. There's, the, there's some, something about the energy and the, the spark, the creative spark, does not exist through a computer. And mm. we, that's, that's a very been a harsh lesson, and we've, we can't wait to get back to having real meetings. It was a kind of, it was um, interesting. At the beginning, we've, when everyone was working at home, we, we were really surprised at how fluid the work felt it, that it was moving. And actually what was happening was we and our team were able to um, obviously have Zoom meetings. We had Zoom meetings with our manufacturers and the companies that we work for. And, and actually to begin with, we all thought, hey, actually, what's the problem? This is actually, this is going pretty well. But after a while we realized that not only were we missing the kind of creative energy in the room, as Ed said, but we were really more or less just problem solving. We weren't creating. And once we'd finished those projects, we'd solved the problems on the projects which were already on the go, everything kind of ground to a halt. And so we were super eager to get back into the studio to, just to be around our team and, and to be able to talk to each other face to face. 
Mm. Um, so we, what we learned in summary is we like traveling, but not as much as we did before. We miss Italian lunches and we really need to be with other people when we're designing stuff. Mm. And obviously the two of you work so closely together. How do you, how did that sort of change for you when you were both working from home and not in a space together? I mean, the same sort of thing applies as to what, how we just talked about it earlier on, really. We spoke a lot. Actually, we spoke a lot on the phone, not on Zoom. We, t- we, you know, we, we probably chatted an hour a day just about everything, just trying to keep um, uh, everything on track. Not just the design side, but also just you know, other, other things, too, that come part and parcel of having a design uh, or working together, having, you know, having a company, thinking about who, you know, thinking about your studio and all the sort of boring stuff that no one really talks about has to be dealt with, you know, your team. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think in the first two or three months, we talked as much about business stuff as we did about design because obviously things were getting a bit scary. Mm. Things were slowing down and disappearing and, you know, there was all sort of managing managing the business, really. Um, And then obviously when the furlough scheme came in, that was quite useful for us so that we could actually put a number of our team on the government furlough scheme which took a bit of pressure off but you know there was it was it was pretty stressful at the beginning um, and I think our minds were not so much on design as they were on um, I don't know survival survival mode yeah mm. but I mean you know the plus side of it was obviously we could spend a bit of time with our families a lot of time with our families which having been traveling so regularly before it was a real privilege to be able to be at home all the time um, and the kids were obviously not at school so you could really do a lot of activities with them and you know just I think you we got a chance to see another side of uh, family life. Mm. Yeah I mean obviously with without the international travel and without commuting to the office uh, you know I, I imagine that a lot of people in the last 18 months have managed to find a little bit more time for themselves and I actually wanted to ask you about the importance of time and also an experimentation and and how they both influence and perhaps shape your creative process. How vital is having spare time to what you do? Well, that's a that's a that's an interesting question to put to people who have kids and who have busy studio um it doesn't really feel i mean you know i'm not complaining we we fill the time we have there's all there's never enough time but i guess in terms of your referring to your question about experimentation it doesn't really seem to happen the experimentation doesn't happen in downtime it happens when you're working on projects and often experimentation happens as a byproduct of things going wrong or things not going right because that it's at that point on a project when you're not certain about the direction of something that you start to experiment because ultimately you're trying to solve the problem of of of, a fa- of failure and trying to get project back on track so a lot of our experimentation comes at that moment in a project mm. desperation Joe. desperate times call De- for desperate measures that's the thing yeah <laughs> um i think it's always yeah you want to feel a little bit out of your comfort zone as much as you can um, mm. on a project well not as much as you can but at to certain strategic moments in a project so you want to know you want to feel like is this actually really good or is this actually terrible um, I think those moments are critical to the development of an innovative project I think I mean I think possibly behind your question is the idea that 
as um, as creatives, you have time to like try and, you know completely new things. Like in some ways, that we're experimenting on one side of the studio and then implementing the outcomes of the experiments onto projects. And it doesn't really work like that for us. We're not researchers in that way. What mm. we do is we we but at the same time we never stop experimenting because every project needs that level of um, experimentation and trying out so many different solutions to problems and often that means w us challenging ourselves to, to to bring a completely new material or a new process into a project um, I think I think what's what was really interesting about the the whole lockdown and not being in the studio meant that projects didn't move forward in the right way because the way that we work is through uh, prototyping so there are always physical models of everything we're working on mm. even if it's even if it's an installation or an architectural project you know there's a scale model and if it's a piece of furniture we've got a number of prototypes lying around the studio and the way that we work is that every day you sort of walk past these 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 prototypes and it, so it, it kind of constantly um, refreshes your knowledge of the project. So you're always questioning certain aspects of these projects. So it's a continual reminder. And if you're working from home, you don't have that. And so projects kind of disappear out of your consciousness for too long. Um, and then you sort of have to, when you go back to the project, you have to try and remember everything from before rather than having a constant update every day. Mm. So does that mean that if you weren't able to look at prototypes and, and get them and, and sort of work with them, that, that, that those projects were just completely on, on standstill or were you working, no, trying no, they, to find well, ways to work around no, it? They, they slowed down, but they didn't progress in the right way. You know, they just... <clears throat> also, we got a lot of stuff sent, didn't we, by FedEx? So instead of us going to the other to our manufacturers, it, ultimately, because it was so tricky... The manufacturers like Vitra or someone or other, you know, Floss would send on a sort of weekly basis stuff over for us to sit with in the studio. Oh yeah, definitely. Ultimately. But what I was saying was when when we were actually at home working from home, oh, yeah. we didn't have that constant reviewing of, of prototypes, yeah. and it kind of it made me realise that how important that is yeah. that you have this daily refresh of projects, even if it's just an because uh, on the walls as well we just cover them with you know dra drawings and. Uh, photos, photos of models, and you know, it's just a, it's a constant ref refreshing. Yeah, sort of stay, staying in that mental space for that project is really important because you waste a lot of time then having to come back to the project, it's like you know, as a cold start. So it's it's true. Mm. And I and I think now though that we've learned enough to not repeat those mistakes, even if things got tough again, you know quarantine wise or whatever I think there are ways we would probably do other things in the meantime and wait for things to get back to normal rather than trying to do it in that way mm. again from home. but we did have I mean there was a period where we were people were coming into the studio the way that our studio is laid out it's a it's um it's an old warehouse in East London and it's on four floors and so we had a person on each floor at one point to try and keep the distance social distancing mm. um so we could still operate from the studio. Um, yeah. Okay. For, for quite a lot of that period. Okay. 
Um, well, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, energy levels, because I think we were sort of talking before you were missing your Italian lunches and, you know, the energy that comes from face-to-face meetings and working with a team of creative people and the travel and all of those wonderful things. And they've now been replaced by endless Zoom calls and, and now podcast recordings and other things that can be done at a distance. And I wanted to know, you know, how you feel about the relationship between technology and creativity and whether maybe, you know, whether we're being overexposed to personal technology or whether it's social media and whether that you've found that that has had an effect on your creativity at all. Well, I think, first of all, I think podcasts are, have been a really great part of the, you know, of, of, the, of lockdown. I think podcasts and audiobooks and actually listening uh, has been a really, one, a really positive, a really positive outcome. I've really enjoyed lots of podcasts actually over the over the over the period. So I, I like that side of it. Zoom calls I could definitely do without. I'd be happy never to do another Zoom call in my life. <laughs> I think someone said somewhere in the early part of the lockdown. No, nobody's uh, sad to finish a Zoom call. <laughs> no, people don't know how to finish Zoom calls. Oh, no. That's the other thing. It's like the etiquette of Zoom. Uh, is uh, is a strange thing. I think um, the worst thing with Zoom though is the fact that you, you just have we have tons of people on the call i mean zoom one-to-one is okay but when you suddenly have eight nine people mm-hmm. and everyone's just this tiny little box a little face and then someone's got some weird background of a palm tree and then <laughs> someone else you know and you just, it's pointless honestly you yeah. can't do anything i think it, it, what it's done is given a huge appreciation for for the stuff that we always championed which was the real world tactility and presence um neither of us are particularly social media people either so it's not like we live on well, we don't know anything about technology apart from well email from we can do email sometimes. we can we can do That's quantum computers but when it comes to the sort of the dross oh the, the, the sort of minutiae yeah, yeah it's difficult. the sort of yeah. the day-to-day rubbish i i can't i can't stand it already but um proper technology is brilliant and we embrace that in all aspects of our work but when it comes to the sort of i, I it's like for me it's like an um anesthesia social media so it's 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 just an escapism i suppose it's better than alcoholism but it's um it's fewer calories it's probably more mentally damaging than alcohol but less physically damaging yeah Mm. because when you look at all the people who get upset and depressed on because their facebook friends are all having lovely holidays and seem to be getting on well with their kids and then it's just this kind of like bizarre fake world that people create for themselves That's really yeah. negative. Sorry, it does my head in there. Yeah, I, well, like I'm definitely with you on the Zoom calls. I feel like we're all going to remember this time in history by. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Are you there? Are yeah. you there? Like, yeah. Those are the two sort of most commonly used phrases at the moment. Um, no, I mean we're just really excited to get back to, you know, get back to normal, to get back out to, you know, to our manufacturers. To, I mean, the lunch thing obviously is. Is, is a slightly tongue-in-cheek thing because actually we just want to go and see our collaborators and our engineers. Well, no, but the thing is, you know, the other thing about, you know, these prescribed Zoom meetings is that when, when we were back on the road and travelling and meeting our manufacturers, it was, actually, it was actually the dinners and the lunches where the conversations moved the projects forward and yeah. then the big ideas actually came. It wasn't really just sitting in front of a prototype you know it's, it's more of that social side of it is where things really started to develop it's, it's the true 
point of collaboration and collaboration is something that we've always really enjoyed obviously because we've been collaborating in our careers since we started our careers with one another and so that extending that to the companies and the people we work with is um, not only is it really um, fulfilling from a business from a sort of business and design point of view but it's actually really good fun it's really exciting to mm. have conversations with people with from different different places face to face um, and it's I guess all those things that we took for granted for such a long time um, yeah, absolutely have, you know, we're looking forward to having back yeah so I think I read or heard that you had said in the past that you wanted users of your products uh, to get a dopamine hit or, you know, whether it be that or experience a sense, a sense of joy. Uh, and yeah. I'm wondering whether you think that that gets harder and harder as, as time goes on. What, for us to make or for people? Um, no, to, to kind of design market. something that brings joy to people. I guess, you know, again, going back to social media, we're all so addicted to, well, I, I don't know that I am and you're clearly not, but addicted to social media and they say that you get a dopamine hit from that and I wonder whether that makes it harder. Um, I think people are always looking now for the sort of the more sensational in everything. You know, they're always looking for that, that image that, conjures out the most extreme example of something and I think that's filtering through into design I mean often um, you know when we're working with companies they'll say oh well that's that's not going to look so strong on social media mm. and you know those sort of com comments you know 10 years ago didn't weren't even didn't it weren't in existence um, I mean I suppose people could say well it wouldn't look so good in a magazine but I don't know there's something very immediate about social media and so people are desperately trying to capture people's attention by trying to do you know dramatic or sometimes silly things and you know that's never been our our sort of no. strategy or it's, it's the antithesis of what we do really yeah we want things to be sort of long lasting and and not always calm, but certainly not really after the sort of the, the sort of initial flashy um, reaction. It's not really about that. And I think this dopamine conversation, which actually we, we didn't, we neither of us remember saying it. So that sort of crept into a crept into an article, but I don't quite know how. Um, I think I, it's. Um, I, I think what 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 we're getting what they're getting at really, or this idea of this sort of immediacy is like a kind of it's like some people may create objects because they want to get a sense of um, well they want press coverage or they want to get lots of likes or it's about creating an infatuation with a product which is then in our opinion largely short-lived in terms of the appreciation whereas we you know when we design something we set out for it to be an object that you fall in love with and live with for the rest of your life honestly that's genuinely what we do and we don't feel that there's a need for another object really in any category that you that doesn't offer you that that doesn't offer you longevity and and a lifelong relationship with well that's part of the reason why we've been very specific about the manufacturers that we work with um it's not by chance that we're working with the companies we are and because we we've chosen them because quite often they have a long history of, of producing really great design sometimes i mean always it's about a, a level of quality so that they can produce a product that if it is well designed will last a lifetime and hopefully another another lifetime beyond that and so 
it's something that is really critical to our design philosophy that it's you know everything that we do should should last for a very long time mm. well i wanted to ask you also about uh, local production because you've you've talked about a few collaborators that are perhaps in Italy or Europe or other parts of the world and mm-hmm. I wanted to hear your thoughts on um, yeah working with local partners and you know I think during the pandemic we've all come to realize uh, chinks in the armor I suppose in supply chain and logistics and I, I wonder whether maybe COVID has accelerated the need or a desire even for localization and local production. Do you have any well, thoughts? I mean, yeah, I, we the first company that we'd ever collaborated with was a company called Isocon, um, based in London, and they make incredible plywood furniture. And so the first piece that we ever did was a very local uh, manufacturer, and we still work with them today. Um, in fact, we're working on a project with them at the moment. Um, so. But the problem, slight problem we have in the UK now is that the UK is not really producing, well, they're not producing that much um, in terms of mass production or even large batch production in many, many areas, certainly not in furniture. So we've struggled over the years to find good partners in the UK, which is partly why we've ended up having to travel so much in our career. Whereas a lot of our contemporaries in Italy or, or Germany or probably even in France can actually work with a quite a large selection of local producers, um, but I think you're right. You know, people do want to work locally, and I think that you know you don't have to go back that many decades before you realise that every single person in the furniture industry was working with local manufacturers. They're working with local <laughs> materials, local producers, and obviously, for many many reasons, that makes a lot of sense from logistics point of view, from producing pieces of furniture that from a a locally sourced material means you don't have a lot of the issues that we have now is when you ship products, you know, so if you're making a wooden piece of furniture in Northern Europe and then you're shipping it to Singapore, for example, where it's incredibly hot, high humidity, those materials aren't used to that environment. And so lots of problems are created um, when you move stuff around like that. So, mm. you know, there's, there's a, there are many, many good reasons why locally sourced and lo- locally produced uh, furniture is a great idea. Mm. So, you know, we've talked a bit about how the pandemic has created some challenges. I, I wanted to know whether you have thoughts on, on how Brexit might actually change uh, the way that you oh, work. <laughs> Sorry, no. to get too depressing. No. To be honest with you, in a way, the bre- Brexit is, um, is much, much more of a serious issue long term than uh, the coronavirus for the UK. I mean, the coronavirus has been... Is a, has been obviously devastating globally. It's been terrible here. It's terrible for the economy. It's put everybody, you know, put us into a recession. But it's, um, it will be, you know, we will live, learn to live with it and it will move, it will pass. Whereas our severing of ties with the European Union and the complexities that have come with that are right old hassle mm. for us. It really is. And lots of our, <clears throat> so the UK's manu- U- some of the UK manufacturers that we do work with are actually stopping exporting to Europe and focusing on the US and and now this new kind of Pacific Rim um, group of 10 countries, which I think, 
you guys are part of, aren't you? I think we're going to be doing a lot of trade with Australia. Mm. Brexit, yeah, it's been a hassle. And it's been a hassle because of travel and it's a hassle because of, you know, historically our team has been really European. Mm. We're sending out a big message to Europe, Europe saying that they're not wanted here when actually we really do want them. Yeah, I was going right. to ask you about your team. I imagined it might have been you know, fairly mixed. Um, Very mixed. I would say that we're usually around 20% UK um, and 80% worldwide. Um, and actually, weirdly, that has changed already um, since Brexit, hasn't it? Yeah, we've it got, has. We've got many, well, got a few, quite a few more UK-based people. At the beginning, uh, we also have an intern internship um, program here where we take people for three months and at the beginning of Brexit although I've heard recently that they are changing it now that the just to get visas for people from Europe was so expensive it didn't really make sense for three months to just mm. have people in so we, we ended up getting interns from the UK which you know which is this which is the whole master plan of Brexit you know you buy local you use local talent and it's not that the guys that we have that we've got in recently are great but we design for an international market and we want to have international people in the studio working on those projects. Mm. So, you know, it's, well, we'll see what happens. It's still relatively new, um, but nothing that I've seen from Brexit so far has been a positive. No, nothing. It's, it's impossible to find anybody who can, you know, even the government, even the government that got us into the situation is starting to sort of apologize for various aspects of it because they, well, anyway, they're just um, idiots, frankly. But, <laughs> you know, the other thing is, you know, Brexit came on this sort of tidal wave of popularism that brought Trump into power and Cambridge Analytica basically <clears throat> lying to everybody. And then bloody Trump is out of office, but we've still got Brexit. So it's a, we're really pissed off about it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, and London's quite an expensive city anyway, as it is. So, you know, I, do you have any thoughts about what this could potentially mean long term for the creative community of London? Well, the thing is, if the economy takes the kind of hit that we think it may, then, you know, let's say that we end up with a longer recession. The only positive I can think of really in, in my own lifetime is how well creativity flourishes in a down in a you know at the grassroots in a in a recession and in tough times how music really music and art particularly flourish in those times of hardship so in a way i kind of hope that we have a creative revolution as a consequence of hardship you know mm. I, I mean that's one positive i mean cities always have their ups and their downs. They have their moment and then it disappears and moves on to somewhere else. Um, London certainly had its moment, I would have said, for at least 15 years. Um, and it's clearly gonna have its down, down moment now. Um, hopefully it won't last too long. Um, mm. I think London's pretty resilient. It will always bounce back. It's been around for a while. It's been around for a while, yeah. <laughs> so we don't know. We don't really know, honestly. Um, all we know is that Brexit is an outright disaster. Yeah, it's a shit show. Mm. But anyway, it's okay because we're designers, so hopefully we'll, you know, it's our job to think of creative ways of sorting out this, these issues, right? That's yeah, our job. design your way out of it, yeah. So we are, and I mean, people are, you know, we are resilient, we are trying to think of ways of doing it, and, you know, it's just a bit of a kick, but we'll get through it. I hope so. 
Well, my next question is is a bit of a, uh, a curly one, I think, maybe. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on balancing commercial success as a, as a company and as a business with um, ideology and, and morality. Morality? Wow. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> what was the one before morality? Uh, ideology. <laughs> oh, ideology. Yeah. Okay, so I guess that we've always thought we've always made life difficult for ourselves by by not chasing money and actually doing what we love and it's not been easy because you know neither of us come from particularly affluent backgrounds you know we've had to really make our own way and so we've making the decisions to not do things sometimes has been doubly hard because it's meant you know turning down you know, business opportunities, financial opportunities to actually stick at what we really passionately believe in. And that has been hard. So I guess our lesson, or at least the advice that we would give is to not follow the money, but follow, you know, your truth, I suppose, or your creative dream. And then on the basis on the on in the hope that, you know, financial reward comes from that in some way. Mm-hmm. That's what they say. When you say. You say commercial success, but we're still waiting for that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> well you know, hope springs eternal. No, day. I think yeah, the thing is, if you're in the industry that we're in, typically you're broke. Broke, but you're you're paid through a royalty system, and you know, if you design products that last for a long time. Um, eventually, eventually the, the sums add up. You know, you have more and more products in production. I suppose. Well, no, I think the actual business, I, the the genuine mm. idea about business is that you design stuff that breaks so that people people buy more. Right? We're making a mistake here because no, but if it breaks, they won't buy another one. You see. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've still got to work this one out. I yeah. think. But what I think the thing is that what you can't don't sell out is the is the um, only thing I'd say. Because you can't come back from that point. So if you do, if you do something that isn't great or isn't that is off, you know what you should be doing, what you believe in, you, you can't forget about it. Particularly these days, there's no, there's no way of hiding from something that was a mistake because mm. of social media, which, as you know, I love. Mm. <laughs> That's great advice. Uh, my final question is to both of you, and, and that is I would, I'd really love to hear you know, what else you would like to achieve in your careers. I'm sure you've got still a long way ahead of you, but you have achieved so much already, designing a coin and Olympic torch and uh, pieces of furniture that are now part of permanent collections in iconic museums around the world. Um, what else is there that you would like to do? Well, we've done, as well as those things that you talked about. I mean, our work is incredibly diverse, but one one area that we've both really loved working on has been the installations and the the more sculptural one-off projects that we've done. So this, we did a huge exhibition at VNA for BMW, a big sort of kinetic sculpture. And I think, and, and also we represented the UK in the first design Biennale here by creating a, a you know, site-specific installation. And I think I speak for both of us saying that we would like to do more of that type of work, more, you know, more, so almost one-off pieces, sculptures, maybe some some which sit in the landscape or that sit outside or or site-specific at least. I think it's something we've really enjoyed doing. I think so, and I think also there are projects 
which aren't um, like that project, which aren't in, don't sit within our what people would regard as our sort of day-to-day -day work, the sort of furniture and industrial design. And there's a certain thrill that comes from those uh, types of projects because you know you're really exposed to the outside world, to the public. Whereas designing a new chair and launching that, whilst it's available to the public, it's not a big, it's not such a, it's not a news story, let's say. Whereas, you know, an Olympic torch definitely is. And there's a thrill and um, a scariness that comes from those kinds of projects. And I think, you know, they, they are, I think finding more of those type, types of projects would definitely be on, on our agenda. Mm. Well, I look forward to seeing that. And uh, on that note, I, I want to say thank you both so much uh, for your time this morning for you and this evening for me. It's been really great chatting. Thank yeah, you very great. much indeed. Great to chat to you. Thank you yeah. very much for inviting us. Sleep well. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank <laughs> Thanks you. a lot. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.